Well, thank you very much, Jody, for leading in prayer and Isaiah for reading the scripture passage for us. Uh, we are back, my friends, in our series on confession and forgiveness. And we've spent already three weeks talking about confession, and confession is obviously a practice that is very important uh, for us in our relationship with God and, of course, in our relationship with others. And now we're transitioning to talk about forgiveness. And we need to talk about forgiveness maybe as much as we need to talk about confession, because it's very hard for people not only to confess when they've done something wrong, confess their sins, but it's very hard for people, it seems, to forgive as well. There are lots of people who go through life with bitterness and resentment and grudges against people uh, that cause relationship breakdown. In fact, actually on the news, just a couple of days ago, I saw a story where uh, they interviewed a family law uh, practitioner, a lawyer, who said that the calls to their law practice uh, of people who are looking to get a formal separation or a divorce had gone up 40%, 40% during COVID because uh, COVID and often the proximity that people have to one another was bringing stuff uh, in relationships to the foreground that had been buried for so long. And, and so uh, relationship uh, reconstruction through confession and through forgiveness is an extremely important thing. I've heard of siblings who don't talk to them, uh, one another for decades on end. I've, I've heard of, of kids who don't talk to their parents. I haven't talked to my dad in 20 years, and it's a very sad thing to hear this from people. Now, at times, this breakdown is due to a failure to confess. For sure, people can be stubborn and hard-nosed and very hard-hearted and they refuse to give in and they refuse to confess and own their stuff. But sometimes it's because people won't forgive. They won't let it go. They won't bury the hatchet. They, even if the person repents, even if the person confesses and, and tries to reconcile, they simply refuse. They may uh, be subtle about it and say things like, well, yes, I forgive them. I just don't want to ever see them again. That's not real forgiveness, as we're going to see over the coming weeks. They're trying to fool themselves into thinking they're forgiving, but in fact, they're actually holding on to resentment. And it's a big deal, my friends. A big deal. So we're going to explore forgiveness for the next few weeks. But today, before we jump into forgiveness, we're going to talk, actually, about how do we prevent the relationship breakdowns that require confession and forgiveness in the first place? Let me put it to you this way. You know, there's antibiotics that you can take for infections, right? You get an infection, you take antibiotics, and hopefully the infection goes away. But uh, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do our best to prevent getting infections in the first place so that we don't need to take antibiotics, right? So we should practice confession and forgiveness when necessary, but if we could avoid the relationship breakdown that uh, gives rise to the need for confession and forgiveness, if we could avoid those things in the first place, that would be great, wouldn't it? I think yes, it would. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at this passage from James, and we're going to consider uh, why relationship breakdown happens, how it happens, and how to avoid it. 
Those are the three things we're going to look at. And before we get right into it, I'm going to make an appeal to you right at the outset. I'm going to plead with you to resist the urge to excuse yourself from this self-examination. Um, not every situation of relationship breakdown fits what I'm going to describe to you perfectly. And frankly, sometimes people who refuse to forgive, they use the exceptions to kind of, as a way of escaping their own responsibility for, deal with, for dealing with what God has to tell them. There's an old saying in law that says, hard cases make bad laws. Uh, and an example of this would be, uh, like, if you want to make an abortion law, people will right away try to, well, what about in situations of rape and incest? Well, those are very, very hard cases. And you shouldn't base abortion laws primarily on these hard cases. And if you and I uh, think about the hard cases in our relationships and we say, well, then it doesn't apply to me, what we're, not, what we're doing is we're refusing to hear God speak to us. And I, I, I'm just urging you and encouraging you to not excuse yourself because of those hard cases, but to hear what God has to say to you this morning. So here we go. First of the three things. Why? Three things. Why does relationship breakdown happen? What are the causes of relationship breakdown? And James, in our passage, basically says... It's caused by these desires that battle within us. Look at verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Now, when he says this, he is saying something astoundingly, remarkably, extremely profound and important. And it's this. When conflict happens and relationship breakdown happens, oftentimes... The problem is primarily internal, not external. It often arises because of what's going on inside of you, not what's going on inside of them. Now, what's going on inside of you? Verse 2, he says, you desire, but you do not have. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. James is saying that, that you can't get what you want. You have unmet desires. Your, your wants are being denied you, and therefore you resort to some kind of sinful behavior in order to get what you want. Take a run-of-the-mill, simple illustration. Billy and Annie are two kids playing in the playroom, and Annie has a toy that Billy really likes. And she's playing with it. And Billy says, give me that toy. I want to play with it. And Annie, understandably, says, no. I'm playing with it. You can't have it. So Billy walks over to her, hits her, smack, takes the toy, and goes to play with it. And of course, Annie starts crying. She's bawling her eyes out. And she calls for mom. And mom comes down the stairs, do, 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 do. And mom says, why are you crying, Annie? And mom says, because Billy hit me. Mom looks at Billy. Billy, is that true? And what does Billy say? Yes. But she wouldn't give me the toy. And what's Billy doing? He's saying it's her fault. He's saying if she would just give me the toy, there would be no problem here. She caused the problem, not me, you see. Now, 
kids are simplistic. Kids are not very sophisticated. And so it's obvious what's going on with kids. Adults, a little more complicated, but the same thing happens, friends. Um, As a pastor, I occasionally have people come to me because they're struggling with marriage issues and they want to work them out. And so they come in and they sit down and I say, okay, well, what's, what's the problem here? And not all the time, but often enough, frankly, uh, the wife will start speaking and she'll say, well, he... Da, 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 da. Or the husband will start speaking and he will say, well, she... Da, 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 da. Um, and it's as if they're saying that, you know, the problem is with them. If, if, if it wasn't for them, <laughs> this marriage would be doing fine. Now, again, they're not children, so they're more sophisticated in, in denying or, or even um, hiding that problem from themselves. And in fact, it, it's often the work of a counselor's job to help people see that that's precisely what they're doing, that they're laying blame on the other person or that the issue is within them and not uh, within the other person. One of the hardest things to do when you're doing pastoral counseling, probably like clinical counselors will will say similar things, I, I can't say for sure, but one of the hardest things to get people to do in pastoral counseling, counseling is to, to get people to stop talking about them, whether it's a spouse or a family member or an employer or friends or whatever, and to get them to start talking about themselves and their issues. Now, James is showing us here, it's, it's not enough to simply say, look, the reason people fight and quarrel is because they're sinners and they have bad hearts. No, 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 no. You got to go a little deeper and you got to say, okay, they're sinners and they have bad hearts, but, but those bad hearts have desires that are unmet and there is a progression, you see, when your desires are unmet that, that can lead to relational breakdown. It can happen very quickly when two kids fight over a toy, but it can happen very slowly too. Most marriages don't break down overnight. They're usually eroded slowly over time as people have their unmet desires grow in their hearts and the frustration of those desires being unmet growing as well. Now, if we could just identify that progression, maybe we can stop it in its tracks. So that's what we're going to do now. We're going to look at how it happens. How does this progression happen? Well, point two, of course, it starts here with desire. Again, What does James say? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Now, that word desire there is a particular Greek word, epithumia. And it's a fascinating Greek word, and it means much, much more than to just want something. That's what we think of when we think, well, I desire a new bike. Oh, I want a new bike. Or I desire a vacation. Well, I want a vacation. No, no, no. It has the idea of inordinate desires or Another way you could even translate the word is lust or craving. And it's not necessarily a bad desire in and of itself. It could be a good desire, like, for example, a strong marriage. That's a good thing to have. But your desire for that thing, whatever it is, becomes excessive. It becomes disproportionate. It kind of becomes outsized and all-encompassing. 
Nobody understood this probably better than St. Augustine, or at least articulated it better than St. Augustine. He used, to, he used to call it, used to call it, back in his day when he was alive in the 300s AD, um, he called it disordered love. It was your loves getting out of order and distorted and out of place. For example, you, if you want a good reputation and individual glory in an outsized way, you will necessarily damage your relationships. Because God has created the world in such a way that not only has he created physical laws about how the world is to be ordered physically, not only has he created moral laws about how the world is to be followed morally, but he has created what you could call relational laws as well. And he's created human beings to be communal. Uh, The community is more important than just the individual and their wants and their needs and their glory. And so if you pursue individual wants and needs and glory over the needs of community, whether it be the needs of your spouse or whether the the needs of your family or whether it be the needs of your church or even the whether it be the needs of your society, you get relational breakdown. It's inevitable because the loves are out of order, you see. So according to Augustine, you're supposed to love things in the right order so that you don't love what should never be loved. That's obviously at the very bottom. And you don't fail to love what ought to be loved. And you always have a greater love for the thing that should be loved the most. And he actually gives an example of this. Take take murder, for example. Now, oftentimes you would think murder is clearly a sin of hate. There's hatred in a person's heart, and so they commit murder. Ah, yes. Listen to how Augustine unpacks this. He says, So you say a man has murdered someone. Well, what was his motive? Either he desired the man's wife or his property, or maybe he was afraid of losing something to this man he held dear, or maybe he had lost something to him, and now he was burning to be avenged. So let's ask the question again. Why does any man commit murder? Every man who commits murder does so because he loves something, because he loves something too much, and that is the motive for his crime. So the progression begins with an outsized desire, a lust, an inordinate desire, okay? The second step in the progression is when desire and want turns to demand, Twice in this passage, James says, you don't get it, or you can't have it. The more you want something, the more you think you need it. And oftentimes you can convince yourself that you also deserve it. And your desire for that thing intensifies. And so your thinking and your acting becomes consumed by that thing that you desire so that you can't be happy without it. And you know what? The Bible actually calls this idolatry. Something that you must have to be happy or to feel secure, to be satisfied. And this doesn't just happen with big things, okay? Um, For example, if you love money too much and you make uh, 
the pursuit of money, the, the goal of your life, everything gets driven through this uh, fundamental desire. Uh, what will necessarily happen is you will kill relationships all around you, maybe even your marriage, maybe even your relationship with friends, maybe even relationship with colleagues. You can end up very, very lonely. Look at the life of J.D. Rockefeller, very uh, poignant, obvious example of that. Now, that's a big one. That's a, a big idol, an obvious idol, a lifelong idol for someone, but it can be something small too. Because you see, you can idolize something in the moment. Take, for example, this, you know, doesn't happen to me as much now. I don't know if it's because I'm sanctified or because my kids have gotten older, but when you're, when you're younger and you have young children, maybe you come home from work. I'd come home from work and it'd be a really busy day and I'd be pretty tired and I just want to sit down in my chair and watch some sports or a favorite TV show or read a magazine or whatever. Just veg. But the kids, you know, they're not being very cooperative and they they don't go to bed very quietly, and they're making lots of noise. And so finally, at some point, I have to get up out of my chair. And so, you know, I get up out of my chair, and I stomp down the hallway to their bedrooms and, and throw open the door, and I ream them out, and I say, you better smarten up, and you better go to bed quietly, or else, and I blow my top. Why? Well, because I had a vision in my head of a comfortable, quiet evening. And my kids are standing in the way of that. And so this idol, is, as small as it seems, it can wreak tremendous havoc, havoc in the moment, you see. Because my desire turned to a demand. That's the second step in the progression. Well, what's the third step in the pro progression? Well, then you begin to judge, right? Because you expect others to meet your needs, but they don't. So my kids, of course, I judge them and I, I, I am able to discern their internal motives of their heart somehow because I think I'm God. And so I say, well, my kids, they're so inconsiderate. Don't they know how hard I work and I put food on the table for them and I do this and I do that and they can't just give me a little piece and quiet for a few minutes. And maybe I begin to judge my wife too and I say, well, you know, if she really loved me, she would deal with this and I wouldn't have to get involved and I could just have quiet time. She's just all thinking about herself and about the kids. And it's incredibly dangerous, friends, because when we do that, we are acting like God. We think we deserve to play the role of God. Who in the world can discern the inner motives of, of another human being's heart? Only God can do that. James... Just a few verses down in the same chapter, we're in chapter 4, in verse 12, he says this, There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Hmm. I'm just a God wannabe. And so that leads me to the fourth step in the progression. I punish. Or you punish. You see, don't ever forget, friends, idols demand sacrifice. So if something stands in the way of getting your desire, that idol in your life, that thing will have to pay. That thing will have to suffer. Look what James says. He says, you kill and you covet. Now, when he says you kill, okay, when he says you kill and you covet, and you quarrel, and you fight. He's, 
he's probably using the word kill to describe murderous language. It might be murder itself, but it, it's in all likelihood murderous language. What's murderous language? Well, you, you insult, you belittle. Maybe you use sarcasm. But in any case, you're using words to injure, you see. You confront them, you yell at them. Sometimes you actually withhold words and give the cold shoulder and ignore in order to punish, you see? And what you're doing is, is you think you need to make an emotional withdrawal from that person because you had to take one when you got offended, when you got hurt. And therefore, there's an imbalance there, and you need to restore the balance. And of course, you can make a really big emotional withdrawal. You know, when kids get extremely angry with their parents, and they just lash out, and they say, I hate you. I never wish I was born. That was a massive withdrawal. But as I said a few minutes ago, what about in a marriage? Few people wake up and go from all is well to all is gone. Even those marriages that turn sour seemingly on a dime, when you do a post-mortem on them, you see that withdrawals have been made for a long, 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 long time as we punish one another. That's the progression. You desire, you demand, you judge, you punish. Okay, stop it. Just stop it. Don't do that anymore. Stop that slide that leads to relational breakdown. How? How? You know, what I find so disconcerting about human nature, because I'm a human being, I feel like I'm a bit of an expert on it, um, is how you can know something, but that doesn't actually make you do it. You can see the progression happening in your own relationship. You can watch it unfold almost as a dispassionate, objective observer of yourself. And yet, nevertheless, you still follow the progression right to the end. What's got to happen in order for that to stop? Verse 1, back to verse 1. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Now understand here, the unique perspective of the Bible is that these desires are not all bad. And so the problem is not desire itself. That's a Buddhist concept, not a Christian concept. Now, often the problem is, is we have wrong desires. We want the wrong things. Uh, but the bigger problem is, is that oftentimes we want the right things and we have a number of Great desires that are waging war within us. They are battling within us and they're getting disordered. So, I, you know, some of you have a great desire for chocolate. But you also have a tremendous desire to fit into your genes. Now, when you give in to the one desire, you are not going to be able to give in to the other desire. And when the wrong one wins, when the wrong desire wins out, <clears throat> that's when trouble happens. But we can't stop desiring. What we have to do is reorder our desires. It's impossible to stop yourself from desiring, but it is not impossible to reorder your desires. You know, when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? What does he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, 
In other words, love God first. Make him the primary desire of your heart. The want that you want more than any other want. And when you do that, he says, he says, then your loves will be ordered rightly. If you love God over everything else, the rest of your loves will begin to get ordered properly. It may not happen overnight. It's not like all of a sudden you won't fight with anybody else because you'll be in the Zen place where you're saying, hey, you know, okay, you're abusing me and you're saying horrible things to me and you're not meeting my needs, but I love God more than everything else, so I'm fine. No, but it is the beginning And it is absolutely necessary to get to that place where you can stop the progression. Let's just finish up with Augustine again. What does he say? Well, it's attributed to him. We're not sure that he said this, but it fits with what he would say. Love God and do whatever you please. For the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. So, last thing we got to think about is how in the world do we love God above other things? If that's the starting point, and that's where we got to get to, isn't Woody Allen right? The heart wants what it wants. We just we can't control that. We can't direct that well. Yes and no. In other words, you can't just tell yourself, love God first. You have to have what's called the expulsive power of a new affection. In other words, you have to discover and see that God is actually supremely desirable. And the way you do that is by meditating on his love for you first. What does 1 John 4 say? We love because he first loved us. Romans 5 says... God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the gospel. You have to pound that reality deep into your soul. And I know I say this all the time. And I pray that it's never getting old to you. But you have got to learn to contemplate the love of God in the cross of Jesus Christ in such a way that it actually starts a fire in you. It's it's like taking a magnifying glass and and the magnifying glass takes all these rays of the sun and then it, and then it, it, it puts them in a narrow beam so that there's actually not just light but heat. And if you hold it on something long enough, it begins to burst into flame. That's what you gotta do with yourself. And I'm gonna read to you and I'm gonna close with this. I admit it's long, but it is a powerful meditation on the crucifixion of Jesus. You can close your eyes if you need to. Whatever helps you concentrate on the words, do it. It's from a book called Unapologetic by Francis Spufford. He's an English uh, journalist and a Christian. And he wrote this book as an explanation about why you would be a believer in Jesus Christ when it seems like there's so much reason not to be in this world. And it goes back to the love of God demonstrated in the death of Jesus Christ. And listen to his description of it. This is is his description of Jesus' 
dying on the cross. He cannot do anything deliberate now. The strain of his whole weight is on his outstretched arms and they hurt too much. The pain fills him up, displaces thought as much for him as it has for anyone else who has ever been stuck to one of these horrible devices or for anyone else who dies in pain from any of the world's grim arsenal of possibilities. And yet he goes on taking it in. It is not what he does. It is what he is. He is all open door to sorrow, suffering, guilt, despair, horror, everything that cannot be escaped, and he does not even try to escape it. He turns to meet it and claims it all as his own. This is mine now, he is saying, and he embraces it with all that is left in him, each dark act, each dripping memory, as if it were something precious, as if it were itself the loved child tottering homeward on the road. But there is so much of it, so many injured children, so many locked rooms, so much lonely anger, so many bombs in public places, so much vicious zeal, so many bored teenagers at roadblocks, so many drunk girls at parties someone thought they could have a little fun with. So many jokes that go too far. So much ruining greed. So much sick ingenuity. So much burned skin. The world, he claims, claims him. It burns and stings. It splinters and gouges. It locks him around and drags him down. Because this is not a rich man's offer of something he can easily spare. This is not some supernatural personage being temporarily inconvenienced. This is love. Love going where we go, all of us, when we end. Jesus is long past trying to show what lies beyond the limits of the world. He is traveling into limit himself now, deeper and deeper, and the limits are tightening on him as consequences tighten on anyone. He's gone to the place our sorrows lead to at their worst. Guilt's dead end. Panic's no exit loop. Despair's junkyard where everything is busted. There's nothing to keep him company there but the light he's always felt shining beneath things. But the light is going. He is so deep now in the geology of woe, so buried beneath the mountain's weight of it, that the pressure is squeezing out his feeling for the light. There's nothing left of it for him but a speck, a pinpoint the world grinds in on itself, a dot dimming as the strata of the dark are piled heavier and heavier on it. And then it goes out. Of course it does. Love can't repair death. Death is stronger than love. We all know that. But Jesus didn't. Until now. This is the first time in his entire life he's ever felt alone. Now there is no love song. There is no kind father. There is just a man on a cross dying in pain. A foolish man who chose to give up life and breath and be a carcass on a pole.
Friends, you and I can't fathom what Jesus endured when he died for us. But we can try. We can reflect, we can meditate, we can think hard. We can soak in the old, old story of Jesus and his love. And when that happens, our loves become so ordered that though comfort is always desirable, it's put in its place. Pleasure is always desirable, but it's put in its place. Sometimes anger even is desirable when it's justified, but it's put in its place. That's it. Let's pray. Father, rightly order our desires, we ask, so that when our conflicting desires rise up in us and they want to demand and judge and punish, we can stop them in its tracks. We can remember to love you supremely, to find all our other loves ordered so that we might not fight. For your glory we ask, in Jesus' name, amen.